The following is an encore presentation of WAMC's Alan Shartok and best-selling author and biographer Joseph Persico, now passed, in a 2010 interview where they set the scene and provide context and analysis of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Day of Infamy speech. Words are powerful. They cause fear, confusion, and anger, or they can create shared understanding. But when words are delivered by a powerful political leader, their impact can inspire us to great action. And it is to those words that we turn now. In the power of words. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This is the meaning of our liberty and our creed, why men and women and children of every race and every faith can join in celebration across this magnificent mall, and why a man whose father less than 60 years ago might not have been served at a local restaurant can now stand before you to take a most sacred oath. Hi, this is Alan Shartok. Welcome to The Power of Words, a year-long series of programs that follows American history through some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches of our time. Our series continues today with a speech that has embedded itself in the public consciousness. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Day of Infamy speech, delivered on December 8, 1941. Joining us today to help us set the context and analyze the speech is best-selling historian and biographer Joseph Persico. Prior to beginning his own writing career, Joe Persico was chief speechwriter for New York governor and later U.S. vice presidential candidate Nelson A. Rockefeller. Of his subsequent work, the New York Times said of Persico's The Imperial Rockefeller, no one has written a book like this about Nelson Rockefeller before. Eric Severide described his book, Edward R. Morrow, an American original, as the definitive biography of the broadcast pioneer. His book, Nuremberg, Infamy on Trial, was described by broadcast journalist Howard K. Smith as simply the best account of the trial. This book was adapted by Turner Network Television as a miniseries that won two Emmy Awards. Persico was the collaborator on former Secretary of State Colin Powell's autobiography, My American Journey, which remained 20 weeks on the New York Times bestseller. List. His Roosevelt Secret War, FDR, and World War II espionage also reached the bestseller list and was chosen as one of the notable books of the year. His book, 11th Month, 11th Day, 11th Hour, on Armistice Day, World War I, has been described by historian Richard Norton Smith as the single finest work I have read on the Great War. His latest work is Franklin and Lucy, President Roosevelt, Mrs. Rutherford, and the other remarkable women in his life. Persico has also been a consultant, writer, and commentator on several PBS and History Channel documentaries. Two of his quotations are inscribed on the World War II Memorial in Washington. Welcome, Joe Persico. Good to be here, Alan. Well, it's extraordinary what you've accomplished. How could any one person have written that much and so well? It's been a long life. But how do you do it? I know that we're going to be talking about the great speech. But first, how do you do it? Do you sit down every day and write? Yeah, I'm not disciplined. I'm compulsive, which makes it much easier. And And better for all of us. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I put in a a fairly early day. I put in a much longer day when I was younger, but I put in a long day still. And it's, it's what I live for. It's what I live to do. 
I would have done it for nothing, but I don't tell the publishers. You know what? I absolutely have so much admiration for you. Now, Franklin Roosevelt was a real favorite of yours, wasn't he? Yeah. I was growing up during the Roosevelt years when I had no recollection of any other president. When he died in 1945, it was like one of the stars in the firmament going out. And uh, I subsequently wanted to write books that would bring me into his orbit. And so I've written two already, as you've mentioned, and I'm now writing a third book on FDR. So, Joe Persico, what were you personally doing on December 7th, 1941? Well, I was an 11-year-old, and my family got word that my great-grandmother had just died. And so we all headed for her home, and the house is surrounded by cars, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. They're all gathering for the death of great-grandma. I go in the house, and all of my relatives are clustered around the radio. They're all listening very intently, and I can tell it's a newscast. But in my child's mind, I'm thinking, I didn't know that great-grandma was that important. Joe Persico, after the mobilization began, you had family. How many of those people actually served in the armed forces? Well, in my hometown, which is Gloversville, New York, there were five Persico brothers who served at the same time. And we had one of these little banners in the window that showed a star when you had a member of the family in the military. And my grandmother had one with five, and it was the leading flag in Cloversville at the time. How many survived? All of them survived, luckily. How old were you when he died? Fifteen. And did you think you knew him? I'll tell you how little I knew him then. Fascinating to me, the day that he died, my mother said to me, what an extraordinary man, and he was crippled. I said, what? She said, didn't you know that? And most of us did not know that. Sure. It's so hard, based on history, to understand the context of what he had put himself through and what he was doing. When he got up there to give a speech, there was always a sun at an elbow. He was wearing tons of steel on him every time he he had to stand up. Extraordinary. I think it's the underestimated dimension of his leadership. Uh, As Churchill said, one man in a million could have overcome his liability to become a great world figure. Tell us about December 7th, 1941. Well, at that time, the country was tense. The administration under President Roosevelt had some strong indication that there would be trouble in the Pacific. We were decrypting the Japanese diplomatic correspondence between Tokyo and the Japanese embassy in Washington. And very clearly, they were they were spoiling for some kind of trouble. We didn't know specifically how or what or where. Did we have their code, Joe? Yeah, we had broken the Japanese diplomatic code about a year or so before. And it was an extraordinary, Alan, in that we had done such a fine job of it that the Japanese messages from Tokyo to the ambassador in Washington would arrive on FDR's desk as about the same time on the ambassador's desk. That's a riot. Desk. But we didn't know about Pearl Harbor. Well, this is one of the conspiracy theories that's been very enduring, a perennial, that Roosevelt somehow knew of the attack on Pearl Harbor and did nothing about it in order to let it proceed and get the United States into World War II. You know, it's like the Kennedy assassination theory and the Lincoln assassination theory. They are hardy. They never die. As far as Roosevelt allowing this attack to go through and allowing the United States to be disastrously attacked in this fashion— We have to ask, which war are we talking about? There was a war in Europe. There was a war in Asia. 
clearly Franklin Roosevelt wanted to be in the war in Europe. He wanted to be alongside Great Britain in fighting the Nazis. He didn't want a war in the Pacific. It would have been the wrong war in his judgment, the wrong ocean and the wrong enemy. But the Japanese attack just propelled us into that war. Now, the Japanese and the Germans had an alliance. Indeed. And this becomes crucial in understanding something that a lot of people don't get <laughs> about why we had a fight with Germany. In other words, why did Roosevelt not just declare war on the Japanese? Why did Hitler? I'm glad you mentioned that because it gets back to this point as to whether Roosevelt engineered ourselves into a World War II. He would have never gotten into the European war had not Hitler done it for him. Germany declared war. And as you say, and this is not widely known, Germany declared war four days after Pearl Harbor on the United States. Hitler made a number of mistakes in his life. One of them was certainly attacking the Soviet Union and opening up that front. In terms of history, was it a mistake for Hitler to declare war on the United States? Well, it's almost inexplicable, except that just about a month or so before that declaration, a story broke in the Chicago Tribune about a secret plan that the United States was involved in to raise enough troops, enough planes, enough ships to fight a war against Germany. Well, Hitler did not interpret this as a contingency plan. He interpreted it as American intention. So by declaring war, he evidently assumed that he was just anticipating the inevitable. And was it inevitable? It's a tough question because having just been attacked by the Japanese, having just declared war upon Japan, it's hard to see how Roosevelt could have sold to the Congress and the American people and at the same time we're going to enter in another war of our own volition. Now, of course, we came off World War I, which you have written about brilliantly, and you have to set the context for what happened between World War I and World War II, and you have to do it in a paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> well, what had happened was that the United States entered that war rather late in the game, 1917, really didn't have troops fighting until 1918. And the problem was that the Germans were treated very harshly after that war. The feeling of the Allies was that they had started the war. France had suffered horribly. That's where World War I was essentially conducted. And so they wanted a punitive peace pact with Germany. The Germans had little choice but to yield. This sowed the seeds of resentment that Adolf Hitler played upon to persuade Germany that it had not lost that war had been stabbed in the back. It was the work of communists and pacifists and weaklings, and the German people were receptive. And so we have one war that was intended to end all wars, leading to the worst war. Roosevelt had a hell of a problem with isolationists. Want to tell us about that? Yeah, there were many Americans who were vehemently opposed to our getting involved in World War II. One of the most famous and influential was Charles Lindbergh, mm -hmm. a great American hero. He headed... Uh, America first. He was a strong opponent. He spoke out against Roosevelt vociferously. So Roosevelt had an obstacle to overcome in preparing the country militarily for what he thought was more likely inevitable. Is there any evidence in all your research to show that Roosevelt really was actively trying to get over those isolationists and get the country to get into the war? He was virtually at war with Germany on the high seas in the Atlantic. Roosevelt had not committed troops to that war, but he had given instructions to the American Navy virtually to shoot on sight. That's because they're after our, they were after our shipping. They were after our commercial shipping. They were fighting the, the British Navy. So this is an undeclared war that we're already carrying out. 
in spite of isolationist opposition. So Roosevelt now is waiting. I wanted to ask you a personal question, Joe, because, you know, you mentioned conspiracy theories. Do you believe that Roosevelt knew? Uh, No. Here's here's what I conclude. (laughs) It's very easy to draw that conclusion. We're breaking the Japanese code. There's 239 broken messages that are available to Franklin Roosevelt prior to Pearl Harbor over the two or three months before that period. Interestingly, while they suggest possible Japanese movement in South China, the Russian maritime provinces, Hong Kong, etc., there's no mention in any of these messages of an attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, let's take the conspiracy theorists a little bit further. Suppose Roosevelt had wanted to intercept these messages in terms of getting the United States into the war. It's an unlikely scenario. First of all, you have enlisted men break these codes. They now presumably know there's going to be an attack against their country. They pass this intelligence up to the service mm-hmm. chiefs. So now you have the Army and Navy and Air Force service chiefs. It ain't a secret anymore. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and this goes the same thing for the secretaries of state, secretary of war, secretary of the Navy. So now we have to imagine this giant collusion in which all of these people go along with Franklin Roosevelt in a disastrous attack on the United States in which 2,403 Americans die, and our Pacific fleet is virtually sent to the bottom. It's not a believable scenario. And I conclude that, yes, Pearl Harbor was a catastrophe. It was not a conspiracy. We're talking to Joe Persico, who is one of the great historians and authors of our time, and we're lucky to have him telling us about the speech And first of all, Joe, set the scene here. What is FDR doing on December 7th, 1941? It's a very quiet day at the White House. He is looking forward to a day of rest. The president is on the second floor residential quarters. He's in in his oval study there. Uh, He's surrounded by ship models, a great passion of his, naval prints, photographs of the family, bookshelves lining the room. He wants to work that afternoon on the hobby that he has pursued since boyhood, that is, stamp collecting. He has available the Bible, the the Scott's stamp catalog, his glue pot, his scissors. At some point around noontime, Harry Hopkins comes down. Harry Hopkins is his very close confidant. In fact, Roosevelt has installed him in the White House. They sit down and they're having a very simple lunch off of a tray. They're making small talk. The phone rings, and the White House operator apologizes profusely to the president, saying, Mr. President, I know this is a day that you wanted to rest, but Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox is insisting that you take his call. And Roosevelt says, Hello, Frank, how are you? And Knox's voice is choked up, and he says, The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. And then... Well, the rest of the day is what looks like chaos to everyone else because you have the steady stream of of military figures coming to the White House, cabinet officials, congressional leaders. Roosevelt is like an oasis in a sea of chaos. As his wife Eleanor once noted, Franklin becomes cooler. The more acute the crisis, he becomes like an iceberg. So he's he's very much in charge. He breaks off from meeting some of these people, and he tells his secretary, Grace Tully, who has been with him from day one, even when he was governor of New York, and he said, Grace, come with me, and they go to the Oval Study, and he said, I want to dictate to you a message to the Congress, and he proceeds to dictate it, and he says, yesterday, comma, December 7th, 1941, comma, a day which will live in infamy, dash, 
He's a very meticulous man. And so he gives the punctuation, new paragraph, new paragraph, etc. And when he finishes, Grace types two more versions, which he edits. And we can see the edits that the president did in his very bold handwriting. It's a short speech, 500 words, about two and a third pages. She types up a reading copy. And at some point the following day, he will go to Congress to deliver the speech. I wasn't alive, of course, during Abraham Lincoln. I was barely alive during um, (laughs) Roosevelt. So I was a couple of months old, but I was not paying a lot of attention to what was happening. I do remember the end of the war. I remember it specifically. But here is the context of this thing. We have a president of the United States who people thought was their friend. They listened to those words, and they loved that man. Well, Franklin Roosevelt, though he was a patrician, had the common touch. It's an extraordinary combination. He had uh, delivered throughout his presidency these fireside chats in which he's talking to you. It's like a friend across the table offering you advice. He adopts the same tone, essentially, in the Day of Infamy speech. It's not a third-person speech. There's a lot of use of the personal pronouns, we, our, I, us. But this guy's character comes through. I can't think, maybe you can, In my lifetime, I'm 69 years old now, gone through a lot of presidents, I can't think of another president who was able to do what that guy was able to do. Now, some people will say, well, it's just because we had this great emergency and he was able to do it, but I've never heard it before or after. Just beginning with the effect of the man's voice. It's magnificent. It's resonant. It's unforgettable. Now, it's an upper-class speech, and this comes through in the day of infamy. He does not say again and again, Franklin Roosevelt says again and again. He is clearly a patrician in his, in his attitude, but he's accessible. He is cultivated. That comes through in his voice, but he's conversational. He strikes me as Lord of the Manor, who still has an authentic concern for his people. Yes. Now, his mama was a tough lady. He was married to Eleanor. Freud says everybody's character is set by the time you're four. What gives him these tools? Well, Franklin Roosevelt was an only child. His parent, his mother was relatively young. His father was an old man, so didn't have all that much influence on him. And Sarah Roosevelt, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, cultivated a son who believed that he was the center of the universe. He was the son in the universe. And this took, the man had overwhelming confidence throughout his life. I think the confidence shows through most powerfully in the fact that he could survive at the age of 38, 39, this devastating attack, which left him paralyzed from the waist down and become, in my judgment, the greatest figure of the 20th century. I wouldn't give you any argument (laughs) about that. There are those people, Joe Persico, who say, that in order to be a great president, you have to be confronted by a great struggle of some kind. They point to Lincoln and the Civil War, who is consistently, along with FDR, known as one of our greatest presidents. Is that true? Well, I think that crisis brings out the best and worst in people. And in the case of Franklin Roosevelt, it, it brought out the best. As you point out, Alan, most of the presidents who are most vividly remembered served during times of wars, great conflagrations, The only president who seems to have made a lasting imprint without being paralleled by a great conflict was Teddy Roosevelt. But as far as Franklin Roosevelt, 
he was extraordinarily well equipped by temperament to lead the country as commander-in-chief. Now, on the other hand, uh, Woodrow Wilson was around during the First World War, and nobody's putting his picture on Mount Rushmore, his uh, statue on Mount Rushmore. Well, we have to remember that what happened to Woodrow Wilson was that before his term was up, the Republicans gained control of the Congress. They didn't want Wilson getting enormous credit for having kept the world safe for democracy. And they they stiffed him on the League of Nations. He was campaigning vigorously for his dream. That was shattered so that he doesn't emerge from that war as the clear-cut hero that Roosevelt does after World War II. Franklin Roosevelt often used humor in his speeches. So we would hear about Fowler the dog, and, right. which was clearly stolen by Nixon in the checkers, <laughs> in the checkers yeah. speech. This was a very serious speech that he was giving here. Was there any humor in it? No, there's certainly not the occasion for humor. The rhetorical devices that he used, one I've already mentioned, that he, that he made it a conversational speech, Another that Roosevelt's in some degree a 19th century man, and he uses words that resonate from another era but still have a power. The word infamy, Hmm. a date which will live in infamy. How often had that word been used? He refers to the attack by the Japanese as dastardly. He also uses another very effective device as a speaker, and that is repetition. He says, after noting the attack on Pearl Harbor and the Japanese last night, attacked the Philippine Islands. The Japanese last night attacked Hong Kong. The Japanese last night attacked Midway. So this achieves a cumulative force, and it's a device that he deliberately employs. So is there anything else, as we begin to listen to the speech in a couple of minutes, that we ought to know about what devices he was employing in the speech? Well, he had these objectives in the speech. First of all, he wants to arouse the righteous wrath of the American people against the Japanese treachery. He wants to lay out the facts that clearly this was deliberate because the Japanese diplomats are talking peace while these ships are sailing towards Pearl Harbor. He wants to make clear, Alan, who is in charge. I, as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, you'll hear him say, am going to do the following. Further than that, he wants to issue a call to arms He says, no matter how long it may take, the American people will overcome this premeditated invasion and pursue victory until absolute victory. We'll hear it more clearly when we hear the speech. But he he receives, after this call to arms, an extraordinary burst of applause. It's thunderous. And it's not simply people clapping. It's the members of Congress. They're cheering. They're hooting. These are people whose fighting will has been aroused. And some of whom had been opposed to any kind of international engagement. Isolationism disappeared on the afternoon of December 7th, 1941. And finally, the objective was to get the the Congress to declare war formally. Yamamoto was supposed, the architect of the invasion, was supposed to have said, I'm afraid we've woken the sleeping giant. Did they listen to the speech? Is there anything we know about the Japanese or Hitler, anybody who who heard the speech? Are there any? Is there any archival material, anything that we know about what they thought about the speech? Well, we know that they heard the speech because as we monitored all foreign broadcasts, they monitored American broadcasts, but particularly an utterance by the president of the United States. Do we have Hitler's reaction? Well, we have it indirectly that he declares war on the United States. 
You mentioned Yamamoto. That's an interesting angle because Yamamoto had studied in the United States. He knew this country, and he realized that if they could not deliver a knockout punch, that this sleeping giant would get up off the deck and be a grave threat to Japan. Well, then why did they keep going? I mean, you know, there there's some evidence that some of his inferiors, you know, wanted to just keep on moving. Uh, well, but he the, didn't do that. Sure. What Yamamoto and the, and the other leaders believed was that by destroying the Pacific fleet, that would drive the United States into a retreat of isolation. You know, you, you knock out the bank guard, and then you can rob the vaults. And that, that was the kind of blow that was intended at Pearl Harbor. It was not sufficient. We were down but not out. We're going to listen to this incredible speech right now, Day of Infamy. It is certainly one of the most quoted speeches in the history of the United States. Does it deserve that attention, Joe Brissico? Roosevelt thought so. He thought it was the finest speech he ever delivered. Here we go. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation, and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya 
Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire.
That was President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Day of Infamy speech, delivered on December 8, 1941. I'm Alan Chartok, and you're listening to The Power of Words, a year-long series of programs that follows American history through some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches of our time. We are lucky because joining us on the program today is Joseph Persico, best-selling author and historian. His latest book is Franklin and Lucy, President Roosevelt, Mrs. Rutherford, and the other remarkable women in his life. So, he gives the speech. There's thunderous applause, as you have said earlier. There's yelling and screaming. And then what happens? Well, the Congress delivers a declaration of war within 33 minutes. It's unanimous in the Senate. There's only one dissenting vote in the House, and that is cast by Janet Rankin, who incidentally voted against World War I. And what was her thinking? She was one of the school of pacifists who believed that wars were fought for a profit motive by business interest industries, and she felt the same pattern was being repeated. Okay, so basically a unanimous Senate and a unanimous House. I can't help but ask you because you're so fascinating with these little tidbits. What became of Janet Rankin as a result of her vote? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't think it hurt her. I think another interesting what happened to question is what happened to the speech. Roosevelt had the habit of taking speeches back with him after he delivered them. On this day, he didn't. And so afterward, he says to his son, Jiminy, who had helped him to get to the rostrum, what did you do with the speech? Jimmy says, I I don't have it. And so that reading copy delivered to the Senate was lost for 43 years. It was finally found by an archivist at the National Archives going through the Senate papers. The dictated speech that he did with Grace Tully That's available at the FDR library. It's on display, and it's fascinating to see it with his deletions, his interlineations, et cetera. Was there any significant or any difference between the dictated speech and the speech he was reading from? He added just a couple of things. One was that he had said there is no mincing, that this is a serious situation. Well, mincing is kind of a mincing word, so he changed it to there is no blinking, that we are in a serious situation. Another change that he made on the spot was this. At one point in the prepared text, he says there has been serious loss of life at Pearl Harbor. And he he adds, I regret to tell you that there has been serious loss of life. It's, again, making it a more conversational and personal address. So I was thinking about something you said a little earlier, which was that he was really a man of the 19th century in his rhetoric. And I, my favorite television station is the old movie channel. You so, too. <laughs> so I watch these older films. Yeah. And that is the way that our actors, even in the 40s, were yeah. still speaking because yeah. they were considered yeah. to be, yeah. you know, this is the elite class. This yeah. is the way in which, you know, the yeah. scripts were written and people spoke. And we have to remember that Franklin Roosevelt had almost a classical education at Groton School and at Harvard. Further, he was a voracious reader, loved language, loved the music of words. I've been asked, did he write the speech? He certainly wrote the speech. He had marvelous collaborators on speech writing. He had Judge Samuel Rosenman, who had worked with Roosevelt for ages on speeches. And Rosenman had a wonderful, flowing, majestic prose style. He worked with speeches uh, with Robert Sherwood, who had won a Pulitzer Prize as a playwright. But neither of these men are even in town. Roosevelt sits down with Grace Tully, and he writes the speech. So he had been president since when? He had been president since March of 1933. 
So let's remember that he's been president since March of 1933. He was now in his third term. And presidents don't serve three terms in the United States. So along comes this war. At that moment, was his fourth term going to happen no matter what? Well, the glass ceiling was the third term. This was unprecedented. No president had even attempted a third term bid. Roosevelt, I think, sincerely felt that he had a a unique role of leadership to perform, and also he loved the job. So against all odds, he is elected somewhat handily, beating Wendell Wilkie. The fourth election as president, which you might think would have been tough again, it's a breeze. I mean, he eliminated the objection to more than two terms with his previous win. And this is Thomas Dewey, right? He beats Dewey in 44, fairly handily. So what politically do we take away from this? Had he been a successful president beyond 33, we still had economic problems in the country. We still had other issues. Well, the debate is, is still alive, stoked by conservative elements in our country who complain about the health care legislation. Roosevelt began our serious social legislation with Social Security, workmen's compensation. All of these efforts, which changed American life, were achieved by him. And I think, Alan, the most significant piece of social legislation that may have been enacted in this country was the GI Bill. You had thousands of young Americans who would have ordinarily come back and gone to their jobs in their small towns with their high school or dropout educations. They go on to become engineers, scientists, lawyers, doctors because of that legislation. Talk about equality of opportunity. It's just an extraordinary act. So when Roosevelt gets into this war, that changes the whole industrial model in the United States. Everybody drops everything and goes to work. And that not only cements him as a great war leader, but turns the economy around. Well, it's Keynesian economics. It is. <laughs> you, spend, you spend your way out of the Depression. In that case, he had a wonderful reason for doing so, to win the war. So you, you had plants that were making baby carriages. All of a sudden, they're making tanks. And this provides jobs, and it breaks the back of the Depression. You mentioned some of his political nemeses going into the speech, like Charlie Lindbergh. Yes. Uh, who flew that famous plane to France. Yeah. A national hero, ticker tape parades, and some say an admirer of Hitler. I don't know whether that was too unfair. What happens to these guys who opposed him before the war, after the war? Now, I know Lindbergh, I think, asked for a commission and didn't get it. As we pointed out earlier, the beginning of the war meant the end of isolationism. And Lindbergh, who had been in the forefront of the America Firsters, non-interventionists, immediately wants to go on active duty. Roosevelt bears something of a grudge against Lindbergh. He's had to put up with Lindbergh's carping against his preparedness programs, and he doesn't allow it to happen. Lindbergh gets into the war very marginally by becoming a consultant to airplane manufacturers who are making warplanes. He becomes a test pilot, and according to the legend, on one test mission in the Pacific, he shot down a Japanese plane. But was Lindbergh emblematic of the other enemies that Roosevelt had? In other words, was he a take-no-prisoners guy? Was he sort of a Lyndon Johnson guy? You cross me, you cross me. Or was he willing to let some up but not others? He was eager to place a bipartisan face on the war effort. Even before the war, he recruited two highly respected Republicans to join his cabinet. One was Henry Stimson, who had served as a, a secretary of, of war and a secretary of state in Republican administrations. 
he had brought in Frank Knox, who had run as a vice presidential possibility in 1936. He brings him in as Secretary of the Navy. So he's, you know, he's not vengeful about people who were once opponents. He tries to co-opt them and brings them into the administration. Did he have his eye out on possible opponents who were going to take him on? I think one of the most interesting aspects about who was going to take him on occurs once the war begins because noises are made about General George C. Marshall running for president, who is the right arm of Roosevelt, and Marshall indignantly brushes that aside. There's a noise made about Eisenhower becoming president, and he's, he's visited by various Republican sympathizers. He knocks that down. Then we get to Douglas MacArthur. Yeah. Douglas MacArthur is a little more coy. Douglas MacArthur does not throw water on local draft MacArthur movements throughout the country. So this and, is the fourth term, yeah. Yeah, he thinks that he has a genuine shot at displacing Roosevelt as commander-in-chief, which is utterly erroneous. Fascinating stuff. You worked, of course, for Governor Rockefeller as a speechwriter. I'm interested in how much the people I admire, like Rockefeller, took from, because after all, he was a bit of a patrician also, from Roosevelt and made his approach to politics theirs. Could you sort of trace that line for us? Yeah, there are, there are parallels. First of all, we have to remember that Nelson Rockefeller, a Republican, went to work for Franklin Roosevelt as coordinator of inter-American affairs. In other words, Rockefeller's job was to keep all of the Latin American countries on our side of the fence during World War II, and he was very effective. There is another very clear parallel between the two men, and I know this from having spent so many years working for Governor Rockefeller. Roosevelt would spread responsibilities far and wide, or as, as somebody put it, he would give one job to six people, or he would give six people one job. He was famous for this. Yeah, and, and, and Rockefeller was very similar. Really? He would disregard the bureaucracy, and he'd say, well, let's create the Urban Development Corporation, or let's create the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, not being bound by any existing structure. Talk about thinking outside of the box. Franklin Roosevelt and Rockefeller practically invented it. So you also had Averill Harriman being used by FDR. Eventually, those two guys went head-to-head. Well, Averill Harriman is extraordinary in this sense. Roosevelt bent over more than backwards to accommodate Stalin and the Soviet Union. He was terrified that if they dropped out of the war, we would bear the brunt of the fight and the loss of men, loss of blood, loss of treasure. So he went out of his way to accommodate Stalin. Averill Harriman, as Roosevelt's ambassador to Moscow, very early is on to these people. He understands that Stalin and the Soviet leadership are not going to love us. We can't placate them. They are going to interpret our aid to them and our concessions, not as good allied behavior, but as weakness. Harriman understands that, and that's the way it turns out. Well, Harriman, of course, is married to this very extraordinary woman. Did she play a role in any of this? Are we referring to pa- Pamela? Pamela? Yes. Pamela Harriman? Well, <laughs> that's an interesting point you raise, Alan, because Pamela Harriman was a uh, very close friend of Averill Harriman's. He provided and maintained an apartment for her in London. She, at the time, the estranged wife of Randolph Churchill. The son of the Winston. Son, the son of <laughs> Winston Churchill. This is amazing stuff. It really is. <laughs> So here is Averill cuckolding Winston Churchill's son, and at the same time, Churchill becomes so important in terms of the war effort that it's one of the great stories of World War II. Let me, let me move to what comes out of the speech 
So after the speech is over, there is this tremendous mobilization that goes on. Does the speech itself, the words of the speech, the day of infamy, does that get used as part of the arsenal in this mobilization? Well, I think that the role of the speech is Roosevelt's making undeniably clear that we're going to win this war, no matter how long it takes to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people and the righteous might will win through to absolute victory. So there's no feeling among Americans that this is going to be a negotiated war and a negotiated peace, that there's any possibility that we might have to retrench and just defend our borders. We're going to win through to absolute victory. And I think that is infectious and contagious among the American people after it's uttered by their president after the attack on Pearl Harbor. In your lifetime, Joe Persico, has there ever been an ethos like that existing in the United States when confronted after the Great Depression, but into the Second World War when the entire country was mobilized, when there were food coupons, when there were gas rationing, mm. when if your father wasn't in the war, yeah. boy, there was uh, there was hell to pay. <laughs> Everybody did something. Yeah. Has there ever been anything like that in this country in your lifetime? Well, it's been called the good war, the war fought by the greatest generation. And that was the last time in my time because all of our wars subsequently, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, they're not clear cut. They're fuzzy. And how they'll be resolved is uncertain, whereas it was very clear in Roosevelt's mind there was only one way to resolve World War II, unconditional surrender by our enemies. I haven't seen that in place in any of the wars I've witnessed in my adult life. So Ike becomes a tremendous hero for his European leadership during this time as commander-in-chief. What was the relationship between Ike and uh, FDR like? Well, it's extraordinary in that we know that the big event that has to occur in Europe is the Allied invasion of Nazi-occupied Europe. Everybody from Winston Churchill to Joseph Stalin assumes that this assignment will be handed to George C. Marshall, chief of staff of the army, and as I've said, Roosevelt's key advisor on military affairs. Marshall wants it. Mrs. Marshall wants it. She's packing the house, getting them ready to move to Europe. Roosevelt has seen Eisenhower in action in three places. Eisenhower was briefly in Washington as part of the war planning board and actually wrote some material for Roosevelt, so he came to attention then. Roosevelt sees him at the conference in Casablanca in the early 1943. He sees him again at a conference in Cairo, and he senses that this man is an extraordinarily gifted politician in the military sense. He's somehow to able to take all of these strong personalities, like General Montgomery, other British leading figures of their Navy, their Air Force, and he's able to take American officials and the British and merge them more or less peacefully and cooperatively. Roosevelt is very impressed by this. So he makes the decision that the best man to lead the Allied crusade is Dwight Eisenhower. So he makes it, even though his top military guy assumed it was going to go to him, and he pacifies him by saying, well, look, George, I need you here. And yeah, he and I think that is partly true, that he, he was very reassured that when he went to bed at night, George Marshall was just down the street. George Marshall was a great patriot, and he lacked an overweening ego. And when Roosevelt explains to him that the job is going to go to um, Eisenhower, he's very statesmanlike about it. He thinks it's an excellent choice, and he, in a very grand gesture, 
he sends to Eisenhower a copy of the message that Roosevelt has written, giving Eisenhower this job. I thought that was just a grand gesture. My own, only personal reaction is George Marshall owned the house behind ours on Fire Island on, on, really? blue, on Blueberry Street. <laughs> 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 Always been important. Great, great America and uh, the Mar yeah. Marshall Plan. Yeah, and the Marshall Plan. A towering plan. legacy. Uh, Marshall Plan, of course. He's not widely remembered. That's unkind, but the Marshall Plan is a great legacy. I want to ask you about Harry Truman. One of the more colorful characters in our life. He chooses him as vice president and the die is cast for the fourth term. Why? Harry Truman is essentially the product of distaste for Henry Wallace. Yeah, Henry Wallace was now becoming the left. Henry Wallace was, in the word of the day, progressive, yeah. an ultra-progressive. And there were a lot of elements in the Democratic Party, uh, particularly Southern conservative Democrats, who thought this guy was a pinko, a communist sympathizer. They wanted him out. Now, Roosevelt is a, a politician to his fingertips, and he certainly doesn't believe these charges about Henry Wallace, but he's got an election to win, and he doesn't want any anchor dragging down his support. So... He accepts Harry Truman. I don't think that there was a, a great deal of rapport between the two men. They'd, they'd scarcely met. But he goes along with Truman. And it's part of the Roosevelt ego, I think, that as sick as the man was, I mean, he only survived something like eight months into the new presidency, that he doesn't really think about his leaving the scene and this other obscure senator becoming president. So fascinating. And Harry Truman, of course, had been leading the committee that was looking into war profiteering, and that became an important element in this. And then he did have Southern roots. There's no two ways about it, yep. so you cement yep. the Democratic Party. Point. The uh, enduring legacy of Franklin Roosevelt has always been something to me. You know, um, I watch uh, Ike has this thing with his paramour in, in Europe. You're writing now on Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> and we watch as it all comes down to Clinton and then uh, Spitzer and all these guys for playing around. Have the rules changed? Well, the, one rule has changed very clearly. You could cover it up in the past, and now you can't. <laughs> I think Elliot Spitzer would testify to that. But, you know, the press was very gallant during the Roosevelt era. There were surmises. There was gossip about his relationship with Lucy Mercer Rutherford and uh, friendship with other women. But with the reporters, their coverage of him stopped at the issue line. They didn't poke into his personal life. Now, Eleanor played a very profound role in terms of the perception of the president and policy, and she had a very definite leanings one way or another. In your recent book, you talk about, you know, Roosevelt's women. We know what Eleanor's role was, yeah. and, and we know how profoundly yeah. she affected public perception. Here comes Eleanor again, and traveling ambassador, a little bit to the left, more progressive, I think, uh, than Franklin was in terms of public perception. But what about Lucy? Well, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt was a great woman, but she was not a great comfort as a wife. She was constantly pushing the president. She was constantly leaving memos at his bedside, constantly urging him to do more. And uh, this is not always easy for someone to take when they have the burden of, uh, of the world on their shoulders. So what did Lucy Rutherford provide to the president? She certainly didn't alter his policies, but she gave him that kind of approval, adulation, appreciation that is very important to all of our egos. Eleanor was not able to provide that. Lucy did. And uh, in part, she was able to do so because she genuinely had loved this man for something like 30 years, and he reciprocated. 
And so her support and her presence meant a great deal to his psychological well-being. And his psychological well-being led to the salvation of this country in a lot of ways. Well, this is something I've thought of. You know, a politician in our era can be destroyed because of personal indiscretions. And I wonder how much talent is destroyed in the process because let's say that the same rules had prevailed prior to World War II. And the discovery of Roosevelt's affair with Mrs. Rutherford uh, was unveiled, and so that he was destroyed politically. Would the United States have been better off without his leadership throughout the Depression and throughout the war? I can't believe that. It's a great point, because as I mentioned Elliot Spitzer before, we've lost a brilliant mind to our American politics, at least up until now, as a result of the very premise that you've raised with us. Well, it's a very interesting thing, Alan, that the British Prime Minister Gladstone said that there was a great distinction between public officials, public behavior, and his personal life. He said that he had known 11 prime ministers, nine of whom had been adulterers. <laughs> amazing, just amazing. Eleanor found out at the end, she was quite ticked off, that her daughter had facilitated uh, Lucy getting down to Warm Springs. Well, when Eleanor Roosevelt discovered in 1918 that her husband had been involved in an affair with then Lucy Mercer, a single woman, she agreed not to divorce Franklin on grounds that he would never, ever again have anything to do with this woman. And she believed that right up through the day of his death in 1945, when a, re a rather malicious female cousin of Franklin's, who was at Warm Springs the day he died, felt compelled to make clear to Eleanor that Lucy Mercer was there on that last day. Very painful. Joe Prisco, I can't tell you how privileged we are to have you here. You're an extraordinary man. I know you goes, ah, shucks, but the truth of the matter is you are. And I want to thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Alan. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to thank, again, our expert, Joe Persico, best-selling author and historian. His latest book is Franklin and Lucy, President Roosevelt, Mrs. Rutherford, and the other remarkable women in his life. Thanks also to our wonderful producer, David Gustina, the FDR Library and Museum for providing the speech. And a special thanks to Bob Bullock from the Archives Partnership Trust. Be sure to join us next time for another discussion about a great political speech on the power of words. You've been listening to an August 2010 interview with WAMC's Alan Shartok and best-selling author and biographer Joseph Persico, now passed, about President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Day of Infamy speech. To listen again or find out more, head to wamc.org. Thanks for listening.